Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Doctor Is In podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nadia Saba. Today, I have a special guest in person. Uh, we don't do a lot of in-person interviews um, with Kelly Nicholson, who is a sales director of Controlled Environment Agriculture with AutoGrow. She covers a big territory. She's in South America, North America, Canada, which I guess is North America, um, internationally <laughs> in other countries. She's primarily focused now on cannabis, um, but she has a lot of background in vegetables and berries. Um, so I'm super excited to talk to you today about sensors, controls, and monitoring RCEA environments. Awesome. I'm stoked to be here. It's about time, right? Yeah, like, yeah, we've been, been talking about this for a while. <laughs> yeah. So let's start with the most basic question. How did you get into controlled environment agriculture? So I moved to Humboldt County in 1997 to go to Humboldt State University. Oh, nice. And I had been, I was born and raised in Silicon Valley. So I had lived in a very busy, you know, city and there was just tons of people. And I moved to the Redwoods and I loved it. I was on the ocean. I had Redwoods all around me. There was no traffic, no smog. It was beautiful. So when I graduated, I had the option, like most kids did, was they went right back down to the city, right? Got the job. I didn't want to do that. Um, so I was just looking for basically any job in Humboldt that, that I could like, you know, make a decent living at just to keep me there for a year or two until I figured out if that's where I was going to stay. So I, I answered an ad for office manager at a local production or local manufacturer, I think is how it's listed. Didn't have the company name. So, okay, cool. You know, they interviewed me and I show up and it's American hydroponics. Oh. And back in 2000, you didn't put the word hydroponics in job ads because you would get a lot of people applying that maybe weren't necessarily there because of the job, but they just wanted to work in the hydroponics industry. Interesting. Hydroponics is uh, code. Was code, of course. Yes. Yes, for yeah. a very long time. So I interviewed, loved the team. I mean, immediately thought it was awesome. And I started on April 10th of 2000 as like a receptionist admin. I think my title was office manager. That was the like official one. And so that got me into dealing with hydroponic growers but they didn't have anybody who dealt with like wholesale accounts. So if you owned a retail store, back in 2000, there wasn't all the distribution that we have nowadays. I think there was a total of like 75 or 80 retail stores in North America, which now it's like 12 or 1300, something like that. Really? Yeah, and so there was hardly any stores, most all of them in California, as you can imagine. And when the store owners would call to place an order for like net pots or our econo trays, they would want to tell me about their store. They'd want to tell me about their their journey in the industry, but I was answering phones and invoicing and all this. So as only a 23 year old can do, I walked into the owner's office and was like, I want to start a wholesale sales department and I want to just talk to the retail store owners. Oh my God. And he said, okay. <laughs> I don't know that he was like, I don't know if I have a choice. She's just going to do this. So I went to my old job and I hired one of my good friends for my old job. And I was like, I need you to be the office manager so I can do sales. And they built me this funny little office because obviously I was just going to be on the phone talking all day. And it really got me in with all the store owners, which was so awesome. And then a few months later, I started traveling and I started just driving all over the country, visiting hydro shops. And at the time, you know, there were many states that didn't even have a hydro shop. And then there were states like Michigan that had like four. So you had to drive all over Michigan. 
And it was a super cool time because there was only three women in the industry who did that. It was B from Grodan and Kathy from Hydro Farm East and me. And when I would show up at these stores, like so many times, I don't, I could have been the first woman who'd walked into that store in months. I like, I, I learned very early on, you couldn't use the restrooms because I would be like, can I use your restroom? And they'd be like, oh, the girls one is used for storage. Because they, I mean, women didn't shop in the stores. Women, like no, nobody, it was, it was a boys club, 100%. When we would have like work events, like a, like let's say little conventions and art conventions back in the day were like 100 people. It was very different than it is nowadays. And um, I was actually just laughing yesterday. Someone goes, oh, I remember you. And I was like, oh man, you know, back in the day, I was the, like one of the only chicks. So everybody remembered me, but there was like a bunch of dudes in baseball hats. <laughs> and I was like, I don't remember all the guys because they'd all be like, oh, that girl I talked to. And I'm like, I talked to a lot of guys. So very interesting back in the day. Um, and that's kind of how I got into like the visiting the retail stores. Well, of course, the retail stores, you know, focus with a lot of growers who grew cannabis. And so I, you know, started really understanding that market and I really started enjoying that market a lot working with Amhydro to develop products that would work better in that in that market. It was cool because we were so small that getting customer feedback was really easy. And getting like there, being like, we like a this net pot, but we need these holes to be a little bit bigger. Or we like this tray, but it needs to have this kind of drain. And we were small enough that you could kind of take that information and quickly make changes, uh. which was very cool. Um, and so that was how I got started. Do you have an example of like a change you made of a customer feedback? Well, I'm trying to think. The one I keep thinking about is the net pots, is that when we started doing these net pots, the, the holes at the bottom of the net pot were the same as the holes at the top. Okay. And I mean, this sounds kind of silly, it's a five inch deep net pot. But we had growers, like at the bottom two rows of holes were just a little bit bigger to let the bigger roots out. We wouldn't get so root bound. So the company that made our net pots was located in Redway, which is in Southern Humboldt. And we went back and they just altered their, their molds a little bit. And all of a sudden we had this net pot that was a way better fit for a ton of people. And just little things like that and having the ability, I, I you know, drove 40 minutes south and we were like, we just need this one to be a bigger hole. And I was like, yeah, we can do that. That's awesome. It was super cool, you know? And it, on the commercial side of things that we did, you know, um, Amhydro, Michael Christian, the owner of American Hydroponics back then, he's now sold it, went to New Zealand, learned all about, oh, I hope this isn't on so good. I'm kind of sidestepping, so if we have to, uh, sorry. Okay. So the way that, the way that um, Amhydro, and maybe just a little background, you can see you can use this, but. Uh, so Amhydro started as Sun Circle Inc. And Sun Circle made light rotators back in the 80s. So there was a motor that you would mount to your ceiling and it had arms that came off of it. You hung your metal halides and your high pressure sodiums on it and it spun. Sun and circle. Sun circle because it was supposed to represent the rotation of the sun. So if you had leaves, instead of the light just sitting there, the light was here and then here and it would hit all the leaves, right? So of course, the lights back in the day were not nearly as dialed in as they are now. So you totally like, and they were very expensive. And it was really actually dangerous and places to run a lot of lights because you would have these big energy bills and that would be very scary. So being able to use less lights and get more coverage was huge. Yeah. So that was how Sun Circle started. Very quickly, they moved into doing trays because people were like, oh, we need to be able to grow our plants in these plastic trays. So they bought a plastic former in the 80s, started making trays and reservoirs and things like that. 
mostly serving the Northern California market because everybody wanted light movers and trays. But in 94, 95, Michael flew to New Zealand because that's one of the homes of hydroponics. It's where, you know, Grindel. I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, they've been growing hydroponically since, I mean, forever, 50s, Why? 60s. So New Zealand is beautiful climate, but they don't have a ton of land to grow on in lots of places. It's very mountainous. Um, they also have like some pretty extreme weathers down south, like on the South Island. And so hydroponics gives them a little bit more of control. They can pull it up off the ground. They could grow their lettuce in channels. And you just have some massive experts down there, Lynette Morgan, Grinville Stalker. I mean, there's a whole group of people when down is, there. When can I like tag along with you and take Absolutely. a trip to New Zealand? I, know. I had no idea. Oh my God, it's amazing. I feel embarrassed not knowing that. Oh yeah, it's like, I mean, multi-generational hydroponic experts, lots of books written by these people. Everybody's down in New Zealand. So Michael goes down to like try and figure out um, kind of how he's gonna go more commercial because Operation Green Merchant had just gone down. Things were getting a little sketchy in the hydro retail market in the early 90s. And it was like, we need to go more commercial. Sketchy because we lost a supplier? Because... Well, so we re- do you know what Green Merchant is? Operation. No. Okay, so Operation Green Merchant was basically the feds came in. Oh, shit. I know. I don't know how much of this. Like, we can put all of this. Book. All of it. Okay. Well, they basically... <laughs> so the feds came in and basically asked a bunch of stores... Um, and I, I wasn't around at that time, so it's all it's all stories I've heard from people in the industry to basically turn in their customer lists. And were they required to? No, but they were. There was a lot of pressure. I had no idea. And most everybody didn't do it, but a lot of people spent a lot of money on lawyers not turning over their lists. So magazine publishers. People in the industry were a lot of pressure. So people who even didn't get pressured, who maybe weren't on that list, got a little bit nervous and were like, we need to be a little bit more diversified, like that can't be the only market. So opening up a commercial hydro market was a really good business move at the time because it was super legitimate. Grow lettuce, grow tomatoes, grow strawberries, like, you know, and that becomes your business then. And so when Michael went down to New Zealand, he met with the stockers and stocker horticulture and New Zealand hydroponics, which is now Blue Lab, you know, Autogrow. So he met with Jeff Broad, who had just started Autogrow. He learned all about NFT and how NFT worked and like beta buckets and, you know, all this. And then he came back to Humboldt and was like, this is the wave of the future. This is how we're going to grow all of our food. And he imported, you know, containers full of channel. And that's how NFT made it to Northern California. And okay, you know what? <laughs> I interviewed Joe Schwartz, and I'm mad at him for not giving me this. Well, <laughs> I don't know how much of the story Joe Schwartz. I mean, Joe Schwartz really? should know the basics of the story, but I was like, you were there. So like, I started in 2000, and I this is like all the stuff that Michael had told me over the years. But Joe, Joe knows some. I don't know that he would mention the Green Merchant thing. I don't know. That is so crazy. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so that's how it came in. So it was, so Michael was like, we need to have dosers because when he went down there, they're like, you have to have a doser. Like you can't commercially oh, grow hydroponically okay. without a doser. So Jeff Broad from Autogrow sent Michael a couple of Nutridoses. And actually Michael was one of the first Nutridose users. So the first Autogrow users and David Goldman from Boldly Grow Hydro down in Pasadena had an NFT farm and he was the second. So in 1996, we had two dosers in the U.S., and it kind of just 
ballooned from there. Really hard to get NFT out there. It wasn't something that most people were doing. I mean, there was, of course, Crop King in Ohio that was doing it. But on the West Coast, it wasn't really a thing yet. You know, my PhD advisor, Gene Giacomelli, yes. did his graduate work on nutrient film technique back yes. at Rutgers. Ah, very good. So that's how I learned about it. By the way, when Marcia asked me, what is NFT? Oh. I was like, oh, nutrient film technique. And she's like, no, I don't think that's what people are talking about. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we can talk about like the non-fungible uh-huh. things. Yeah. I can't help it. Every single time I see that, I'm like, why would you buy nutrient film technique pictures? I don't know why you would do that. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, I don't, when I see the things and they're like, buy NFTs, I'm like, that is such a weird way to sell that. <laughs> like, it just doesn't make any sense. I was like, the terminology oh isn't working gosh. right. Oh, my God. That's hilarious. Maybe we should, like, create some NFT <laughs> images NFTs? or whatever to, like, create in the metaverse for oh someone's screen Oh, my God. That'd be so house. funny. Okay, oh don't God. include that because I think we just created a million dollars. That was private. Um, yeah, well, so then we got involved. So when I started in 2000, he had some good farms kind of in Northern California, Bay Area. And we were then selling the mini dosers, the PHNEC mini dosers with AutoGrow. I was terrified of them at first because I was like nervous about technology. And I was like, I don't know how these work. That was that lasted for about a week until some of the guys at M Hydro were like, come out here and check this out. They're so easy. Then I love them. And I was like, well, everybody has to have one of these because the idea of like hand dosing, once you saw how easy it was to automate it, it just like it was like, why would you ever do that? Like that's so silly. So when I'm traveling around the country and I'm dragging three by three trays and reservoirs out of my rental cars and I'm showing you net pots, I'm also like, check out this pH mini doser. It does pH. And people were like, that is so cool. And that's how I got into AutoGrow is because I was really promoting these. So AutoGrow started with the hydroponic part of the system. Yeah, so AutoGrow started because Jeff Broad was a professor at the University of Auckland. Okay. And he was growing, had like a little like like vegetable garden on his front porch or on his back porch that every night when he went home, he had to balance the pH in. So he was a, like an electronics engineer teacher. I, don't, I may have that wrong. But he basically tasked his, his class to like come up with a machine that would automatically do that for him. And there's the birth of AutoGrow. Was like, cool, like I figured this little thing out. And then once he figured out pH, then it was like, well, now I want to do the nutrients. So now I've got yeah. BC. And then he just had this little kind of like this cool little machine that did this thing. And then some of the commercial growers were like, I would take one of those cool little machines. And so he stopped teaching. And I say stopped teaching, he was stopped being employed by the university, but he taught until the day he died because he taught me everything I know. And he taught all of, you know, that was his thing. Like he was never stopped being a teacher. He just ran a business. And it was a different, you know, just a different way of teaching basically. Um, But yeah, but that's kind of how Autogrow started. And then he got in with like the stalkers and the people who were doing um, NFT in New Zealand. So when Michael went down, met them all. Brought it into the U.S. So you were at Amhydro during the birth yeah. of AutoGrow. So you have been part of AutoGrow. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> yeah. Since the beginning Since of the AutoGrow. very beginning. Yeah. Like, I mean. That's amazing. Yeah. So it, because I, so like when they did the pH minis and we had the Nutridose and that was what we focused on. AutoGrow also had a couple of uh, simple like environmental controls called like the AutoVent that did some basic greenhouse control, but American hydroponics didn't get involved in greenhouses. That was never something that we were focused on. So I didn't focus on greenhouse controls. I did all water management. Okay. 
Um, and then in 2003, the mini dosters got a revamp. So they were like redone. They were a lot easier to use, like new PCBs, like just the way that they were built. And that got pretty good customer feedback. Um, and then in 04, they started developing the IntelliDose. Oh, yeah. And the IntelliDose now has been on the market since 05. It's like a classic dosing system. It just works. But that was one where customer feedback was huge for us because we worked with our growers in California. I mean, most, and I say that because the growers were literally like in Santa Cruz, in San Francisco. We gave them the prototype. They were like, this part works, this part we don't like. We want this to be different. And went back to New Zealand and a few months later, we had a whole rebuilt IntelliDose based on all of that feedback. And <clears throat> like one of the big ones, of course, was that in 05, we, made, we did a three part, an A and a B and a PH down. Uh -huh. Within six months, we had an eight part <laughs> because all of our growers were like, we need to do additives. We have supplements. We need to be able to do that. And we were like, oh, if we're going to serve that market, we have to be able to do that. So we were the first, as, as long as I, as far as I know, the first doser on the market that catered to cannabis farmers. I'm having so much fun listening to this timeline <laughs> because I'm thinking about where I was mm -hmm. and these periods of time, like, you know, like the early 90s, I'm in high school in Sacramento, in Northern California, yep. right? And then late 90s, I'm, you know, I met Davis and like probably buying some weed at a parking lot or something, <laughs> right? Yep. And then, um, you know, like 2000, <clears throat> I move away, I'm at Penn State, but 2003, like I'm at the U of A studying controlled environment ag and just like, and, and thinking about the trajectory of, of auto-grow, hydroponics, and where I was in my development in controlled environment agriculture yeah. and cannabis and California and, like, all the things. And I'm like, wow, like, just not knowing all this stuff that's going on, <laughs> right? right? Like, behind the scenes, in the background, so close to where I live, right? So yep. close to home with where I live and what I'm studying, and like, I don't know, I'm just, it's, it's fun to hear this timeline. It, it is, it's a fun timeline to have been a part of. I know. You know, it, it really is. is because we didn't know at the time, like if you had told me in 02 what I'd be doing in 2022 and like that we would be talking about it like this and that, I mean, that would have just thrown me for a loop, you know? I, I kind of always laugh too. Like if you had told me I'd be calling it cannabis, oh my God, I yeah. would die. Nobody we never called it cannabis. No, no. Like, do you know how like douchey you would have to be to call it cannabis <laughs> in 2002? Everybody would have been like, yo, you're not invited to the party. Like you just can't, you know, do that. But so now it's like, it's such a different thing. And I, and I got to live through the time where we had to teach ourselves how to refer to it Yeah. because we mm. couldn't call it weed and pot and marijuana anymore because as an industry, we needed to step that up. And I remember 2011 and 2012 and 2013, and we're all at these trade shows going, oh yeah, I mean, cannabis. And we were all like saying it like that because like, oh my God, we have to call it that. And now it's just part of our normal vernacular. vernacular. Yeah. And, it, and it, it was right. We needed to do it as an industry. And nobody like came out and emailed us all. and was like, you're all going to start referring to it like this. We just all realized that that was going to be necessary. Yeah. That we had to get rid of a lot of the slang mm -hmm. in the way that we marketed it or the things that we talked about not that people don't I mean we still all use it, of course in talking to each other but you know the conference we're at a cannabis conference right now that's what it's called yeah, we're not at like you know growweed.com <laughs> I mean that, that's just not like where we are and it's because there's a there's we had to do that that's yeah, part of the deal yeah. 
change the image yeah. of the industry. Change I mean, it. and and it's funny too because like the hydro store, you know, like hydro is code. Oh, and 100%. I remember like 2004, 2005 when I was doing my PhD. So for like before doing my PhD work, I was studying mushroom production. So, like, 2004, 2005, you know, I'm telling people, oh, you know, like, greenhouses, tomatoes, and they're like, what, what are you going to do, like, the real thing? When are you going to do hydroponics? And when are you going to do, like, psilocybin? And I'm like, I do do hydroponics. Like, what are you talking about? Right? How else would I fertilize and water my tomatoes? And they're like, but no, that word means something else. Yeah, it, it, I mean, that's a super, super, like, normal thing that happened is, like, and my mom used to laugh all the time because she was super proud of me, right? So she'd tell all her, she works at American Hydroponics. I'm like, oh, so she wears weed? No, she doesn't. But that was the thing, you yeah. know? And so she was like, I mean, they used to tease her if I would ship something from work, like to my mom's work. She worked at Stanford. The like shipping guys would be like, oh, you got your package from your daughter up in Humboldt. And it would be like my brother's birthday present or something. You know what I mean? It was probably like a video game Which is a bag of weed. Yeah, but- no. <laughs> I didn't ever ship those because I was terrified of the Yeah, beds. no way. No, <laughs> it was only a six-hour drive. Oh, yeah. But, you know, it's like... <laughs> um, but, yeah, just very different, you know, and how we kind of... How that started. And then, like, the IntelliDose came out. And then everybody was like... Because we also had one of the first uh, online platforms. So you could connect your IntelliDose mm. to your computer. You could get data. You could get texts and emails in 05. Like, that didn't happen. And so immediately everybody's like, well, where's the climate controller to go with it? Yeah. And we were like, oh, you want... So we when we designed the IntelliClimate, that was designed by cannabis growers, for cannabis growers, for indoor farms. It was not ever intended to be used in a greenhouse. We didn't intend for it to be used... And I mean, back in the day, like, I would still get nervous. My stomach butterflies when I say that. Like, in 07, we designed something for cannabis farmers. Because we weren't supposed to do that. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that yeah. wasn't supposed to be a thing. It was supposed to be like, this is for your, you know, lettuce farm in a greenhouse. <laughs> you could also use it indoors. And it was like, we just didn't do, I mean, we never said anything. We just asked the right people and the right people gave us feedback. And then out came the IntelliClimate. Also, what you just said, also indoor being oh, yeah. code indoor. for cannabis. Oh, yeah. and, and that's what I find so <laughs> fascinating in general about the veggie and the cannabis mm-hmm. markets is how... Vegetables are going from the greenhouse to indoors <laughs> and vertical farming, and cannabis is coming out of the closet, going from indoors to the greenhouse into field hemp and yes. you know field grown cannabis, and they're just like two ships in the night crossing, yep. and it's like what were the you know like the green the the cannabis growers learning from the vegetable greenhouse growers, yeah. the indoor growers going to greenhouse, and then the gr- I don't know that that. The, the vegetable growers are paying enough attention to what cannabis growers learned indoors. They should probably be asking them more questions. A lot questions. more. A lot more. Um, like, uh, one of the coolest parts about being in this industry for so long is all of the technology that food production and flower production and things are using now. I, I mean, I can't say all 100%, but so much of it came from cannabis growers and what they experimented with. Because no lettuce farmer could afford to test LEDs, right? That wasn't going to be a thing. But they let the cannabis guys test the LEDs for a whole lot of years. And they burned plants and killed plants and all kinds of stuff went haywire. And and the cannabis guys just kept investing. Buying the next great one. Buying the next great one. And now they work. 
and now I go into lettuce farms and there's LEDs all over it. Exactly. It's like, thank the cannabis guys who ate the cost of that and the crop loss for years 100% working agree. with the lighting companies to teach them what plants need. Yeah. And so, so much of the technology that comes into like what produce farmers use right now comes from all of the experimentation and the, and the time and money investment yeah, money. that cannabis guys yeah. Same with HVAC. Oh, 100%. I mean, if if there wasn't an industry that could support buying a piece of equipment that costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to manage temperature and humidity and heat and and, and airflow, then the indoor vertical farmers, the produce growers indoors, would not have access to equipment that is still, I would say, in development, still trying to reach maturity, but those cannabis investments help to seed that development. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, and and, you know, and these guys were willing to. Mm -hmm. It's one of the coolest things about cannabis growers I love, Um, especially old school cannabis guys. They are masters of like, you know, all kinds of different trades. They are carpenters, they are electricians, they are plumbers. They are willing to try just about anything to get a better crop. Because at the end of the day, that's what they all want is a better crop. Yeah. Because they'll make more money and because they can be prouder of it and they just like to grow good weed. And exactly. like that's what they want to do. But they're willing to like be like, I don't know, I'll give that a shot. I'll try that weird filtration system. I'll try this new irrigation pump you've got or these new drippers. And if they don't work, they're like, oh, give it a shot. We're going to go back and do this. And, they, and they're willing to just be really flexible yeah. because they just want to get the best crop that they can. And it's fun to work with them because they, they always are like, well, what about this? And what if we try that? And, you know, it, you just don't have that freedom sometimes when you grow produce right. to be that flexible. You kind of have to have a product that you invest in once. Like if you're going to buy a whole new irrigation system and you're doing like tomatoes, you can't really afford to do that every other year. You need to like know that the irrigation system you put in. But like maybe with cannabis, you could try it. Like, I don't really like that one. I'm going to try another one next year. It's not ideal. They don't love it. But like they're willing to like take that hit. So then the tomato guy goes, I'm going to use that because it's been proven for the last 10 years. Right. And I, I like that. A little more less. Le- a little less risk. No. Yes. More, the veg- <laughs> I'll start that one over. The, the produce growers are more risk averse than yeah. the cannabis growers. Well, they've got a different margin. <laughs> they have, yes, you know, there's a exactly. little bit of a different, you know, dollar amount that you're in play there. You know, but there's, uh, yeah, there's just so much that goes into it. And so that's to go. So the IntelliClimate came out, right? We had the IntelliClimate, the IntelliDose, and it was this like perfect kit. You could do a grow room. You could do your automated dosing. You could have your your climate control. You had one you know place on your computer. You could look at everything. You could remotely log in because 07 is when the iPhone came out. Mm. So you start getting into like VPNs and being able to look into things. And then we all know 08 happened and then 09 happened and everybody was really, really happy and a lot of things were going really cool. And we were selling Intellis and we just called them the Intellis at this point, right? It's the Intellidose, Intelliclimate. And uh, very quickly, somebody named me Intelli Kelly. And oh my God, that Hell has been yeah. like a thing. Yeah, so Intelli Kelly sells Intelli devices and uh, I don't know that I'll ever shake it. It's hilarious. I think. <laughs> but I right. still sell Intellis and they're fantastic and it just works. One year for Christmas, Sam Hydro got me a shirt. It has a picture of me on it. And I'm like pointing at Intellidose and I was like, control issues? Call Intelli Kelly. <laughs> Please tell me you still have that I shirt. I still have that shirt. And <laughs> why aren't you wearing it around every conference? <laughs> it's so funny. Like, 
I did for a long time. I did for a long time. And so that's how that kind of, that that's, that's where, I mean, that would just solidified me in the controls market. And I went, yeah, this is, this is what I want to do. Wow. And then 2014 hit and, uh, just a bunch of stuff had been going on and I was kind of ready for a change. I actually interviewed with a really popular nutrient company and was maybe going to kind of stay in the industry, but kind of switch lanes and then ended up talking to the guys at AutoGrow, told them, you know, I'm just kind of ready for something new. And they said, well, why don't you just focus on AutoGrow 100%? We'll start up AutoGrow America. So my uh, spare bedroom started filling up with Intellis and I was just loaded up with Enviro sensors and everything. And uh, then I just hit the road and it was just me and me and AutoGrow. Wow. And uh, that was 2014. And then in April of this year, uh, Blue Lab acquired AutoGrow, which is a really cool fit because Blue Lab is also a New Zealand based company. Yeah. I've known them since they were New Zealand hydroponics. And then in 2000, they became Blue Lab. That's in 2000 is when I met the owner of Blue Lab for the first time, uh, Greg. And I was actually the number one reseller of Blue Lab in 03. In the, like in the world, I sold more Blue Lab, which is just so funny how this industry circles back around. I was just gonna say right? that, like it's funny how AutoGrow is almost going back to its roots. It, it is, I mean, we're, we're there and Blue Lab is just amazing with these handhelds and their probes and their meters and everything that they do. And then we just expand that product line because now we go into like climate control, we're getting into the CEA market. So it's a really good fit. And I love working for New Zealanders. I just absolutely love the New Zealand culture. I love just, I just love the way that they treat their human beings because mm. we're human beings who have lives and families and things. And they, they have a lot of um, respect for that. Mm. And so it was really nice that, you know, if we were going to be sold and we were going to be acquired by a different company, that it was a company that had very same values and very same kind of work ethics like we did because it didn't really change a whole lot about how we functioned yeah. on a daily basis. It just meant that we went from a team of nine to like a team of like 90. <laughs> you know, we have wow. all these extra resources, wow. which is pretty cool. Yeah. So yeah, so now I'm technically an employee of Blue Lab and I'm part of the Blue Lab team, but I'm still uh, I'm still focused on the AutoGrow CEA market. Okay. Yeah. So, so, okay, so you have IntelliDose, which was, I guess, technically originally developed for non-cannabis. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously applied to cannabis, but yeah. like, vegetable market. Then you had Intelligrow, which was developed specifically for the Yeah, the Intelliclimate was designed or, I'm sorry, Intelliclimate. Yeah, okay. um, so, I mean, if we if we talk about today, and, and we sort of started talking about like some of the differences between cannabis and produce, indoor and greenhouse, um, would you set up the, the systems? Would IntelliKelly set up those Autogrow <laughs> systems the same? for those different environments or crops or are there things that you would do differently uh, just in like in general if somebody comes to me and they want to grow lettuce yeah. like what I what I look at their automation in a different way yeah I, sometimes I do I think a lot of it probably has to do with sensors and how many sensors we put into okay. a, a crop so if you're doing something like lettuce that's going to be horizontal everything's at four feet off the ground you know, we're not dealing with big, deep canopies of plants mm. and things like that. You're probably fine to just throw an Enviro sensor in that does temp and humidity readings, kind of right above the plants, and call it good. Okay. But if we're going to be growing cannabis um, and we're going to have big, deep canopies of you know a lot of foliage and things like that, I'm going to put a few extra sensors in that area because I want to make sure that we're not getting any you know heat spots or that we're not getting any spots that aren't getting airflow, so the humidity is building up. Um, a lot of it does come down to money too. Sensors are expensive mm. 
And if you're growing lettuce, a lot of times one sensor is enough data for you to be able to manage that greenhouse pay. Whereas maybe in cannabis, it's worth spending the extra two or three grand to get a couple extra sensors because the cost of crop loss is so much higher when you're growing a higher dollar commodity. I was going to ask that, like, yeah. what's so special about cannabis that it gets three sensors and four <laughs> lettuce only gets one? It, well, you know, <laughs> Wouldn't there be hotspots also There for are hotspots, but if you were to lose, you know, uh, like a little three-by-three corner of lettuce, you know, and you lost, let's say, 30 or 40 heads of lettuce, yeah, that's a bummer and that's not really great, but, you know, maybe that's 30 to 60 bucks worth of crop. Mm. If you lost a three-by-three three square of cannabis, it's going to be more than $30 worth of crop. Yeah. So when you look at it like that and you kind of break down, like, what is my investment in my sensors and how much data am I going to get to make sure I'm man managing it right? You know, it's all, it's like, you know, your risk. How much risk are you willing to take versus what investment you want to take? We have a lot of growers who start with one or two sensors because that's just in the budget. And then within a year or two, we'll put another couple of sensors in. Yeah, get a couple crops under your belt and then start to understand that having more sensors will give you better you know, control options. Okay, so before we go to control options with mm -hmm. all those sensors, okay, what about vertical? So if you had a, a full-on vertical farm that had like 10 le levels of lettuce mm -hmm. versus say just two levels of a cannabis crop, would you also recommend different numbers or distribution of sensors? I was, yeah, because like with a vertical lettuce farm, I'm always going to do two. I'm going to go one that's about a third of the way up and a third of the way in. And I'm going to do one that's a third of the way down and a third of the way in. On the other side. On the other side yeah. of the greenhouse. Yeah. And I'm going to do two because that gives us an idea like, are we getting airflow at the top of the farm? Are we getting airflow at the bottom of the farm? You know, how's one into the farm versus the other? Would that be per piece of equipment? So if I had two units running that farm, two HVAC units, I'm speaking to okay. HVAC. Okay. Would that be two sensors per HVAC unit, or would that be one sensor per HVAC? So the unit? way I look at it is, what zone am I controlling? So okay. for ease of like uh, thought, like think of like a 40 foot shipping container. Okay. I'm going to control that as one environment. So I'm yeah. going to put two sensors in there to get a good average, but to okay. have the data from both. Whether I turn on one HVAC or two or three HVACs to control that. That doesn't really affect what how many sensors I'm going to put in. I need sensors for monitoring to tell the controller okay. how to run those HVACs. Yeah. Um, so it wouldn't. So in that in that one now, if you wanted to break that down and have like one HVAC on the back half and one HVAC on the front half, that would then be two zones. Okay. And I would manage those differently. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so now you're two level cannabis. Are we talking now six sensors? I would probably do six or eight sensors wow. on that because of the humidity buildup. I mean, yeah. if nothing else, it's to ma make sure that we're getting airflow through there and that we don't have these dead spots where the humidity is building up and we've got you know a hot spot at one end of the row or that you know in the top back corner you know those ones aren't hotter than the ones that are on the bottom right i mean you've got things to think about like where doors are <laughs> and the doors for going into these vertical farms you know you open up the door and every time the plants right there by the door right. look totally different than the rest of the plants in the facility and then the ones in the back corner and I'm always like basically that spot on the door and that one in the back corner useless you should not I know. grow any why do you even there. have anything there <laughs> yeah, yeah just keep like your workbench there like it's, I was just gonna yeah, that. <laughs> it's like just this is not a good place to grow plants and you're like vegging here and you want to move these plants it's just and it's like, yeah. what do you want to control to? Like, I even think about a greenhouse and having a wet wall mm -hmm. and exhaust fans on the opposite end. The The plants that are within, like, three feet of that wet wall are always, you know, if I'm just thinking about lettuce, are always a few inches shorter yes. <laughs> yes. than 
than the rest of the, the, rest the greenhouse. Of the greenhouse. Yep. And, you know, it's like, well, I don't want to put my control sensor there because it's just going to completely skew. Yes. You know, now my heaters are going to turn on because it thinks the whole greenhouse is over Because it thinks it's too cold. So, exactly. so we put, you know, we want to place the sensors so that we understand, like, when the, where is the airflow pulling that wet wall air through, right? Mm-hmm. And so if we're pulling down and then kind of up, then we're going to have a sensor a bit above that wet that wet air that's coming right in. Oh. So it's not just getting soaked with like that wet air yeah, and getting yeah. a really mis- misunderstood reading and a little bit farther back. Yeah. And, you know, as a farmer, you're going to be looking at where that lettuce is. Realize that that lettuce is going to be a little bit smaller. That's okay. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, you exactly. kind of understand that you need that. But like how we do your fans, for example, you know, when I go in to someone and they're like, oh, I have six fans, all the left ones turn on at once and then all the right ones turn on. But only if it gets like 10 degrees hotter. I know. And I'm like, but you get this stratification of the crops because you're not pulling your airflow properly. And I, you know, I'm, uh, it's my big thing is constant airflow. It's just move the air. Move Move the the air air as much as you can. You know, trying to talk to these indoor guys and it's constant. It's like, oh, I've got four HAF. You need 12. You know, and they're like, well, what if I had 12? I'd be like, you need 20. I like, no matter how many you have, you always need more. And I'm trying to like, you know, remind them like we're we're trying to recreate all of the good about being outside mm-hmm. and take away all of the bad. Yep. So all the pros about being outside, we need to create inside and get rid of all the cons. So we have no rain, we have no snow, we have no well, hopefully no bugs, but no bugs. Right. But you know, we don't have a lot of like we don't have deer that are coming I would by. Just yeah. No animals, no animals shitting are, on your lettuce. Yes, or... like none of that. So we're trying to get rid of all those cons. But we're also trying to recreate all the pros. And a pro about being outside is wind. Mm. Wind is good, right? Yeah. Airflow is good. Plants like it. They get strong when they get rustled yeah, around. They do. Their stalks get strong. And you're trying to grow these like massive buds on these little weakling, you know, yeah. plants because they don't have any, they're not strong enough to hold it up. Yeah. And it's like move those plants. Like, like, threaten them a bit. Let them stock up. Let them so, build some cellulose, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, let them get strong so that when they build these big flowers, they can handle mm. that. And so it's like, and the added benefit, moving the air keeps you from getting hot spots and your humidity buildup. And yeah. so I'm just, I just am like constantly move air. I think people underestimate it too. Even in Always. a humid climate, I mean, you just talked about humidity inside, but even in a greenhouse, it's like, oh, we can't grow any, you know, whatever crop pick a crop usually it's cannabis but it could be anything in this humid climate and it's like well okay but how often is it really humid oh you know like one month out of the year (laughs) right and it's like okay well there's a few things i could think of you could do Mm -hmm. one is maybe don't could you maybe strategize so you're not like picking your week nine flower during that like (laughs) most humid time right maybe we're doing some veg maybe we're like you know yeah like do something a little different like there's business strategies i feel like but also airflow like airflow is breaking up that boundary layer it's removing that humidity right like yes the air is still humid but even if we stood out by the ocean in Florida and it's 100% humidity, as as long as there's wind coming yes. at us, we still feel pretty good. I yep. mean, yeah, it feels humid, but it's not stifling humid. Yes, yes. And that's that's funny that you would say that because that's very similar to how Eureka, like the Humboldt County Bay area, mm-hmm. like around Eureka, Arcata, 
is is that it we we live in a we live in a rainforest in Humboldt. Okay, it's I not guess a you tropical do. rainforest, and everybody thinks, "Oh, you have two cans." No, we don't have two cans. It's not a tropical rainforest. We but we live in a rainforest. That's how redwoods love it, right? Yeah. But it's a cold rainforest, and that's why people who live up there, we are very specific, and we love our weather. It's sixty three degrees all year round, <laughs> um, so we don't get big highs, but we also don't get big lows but we are very humid. I mean, if you look almost any time of the year, we're 70, 80% humidity, mm. which for me would kill me if I was in North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, because it would feel so muggy, but you don't feel that in Eureka. It's just that you're on the ocean and you've got this beautiful ocean breeze yep. that keeps it nice. Yeah. But we, uh, this time of year, we also, we get a little stagnant. When the wind's off, when the ocean breeze isn't coming in and right over the hill, it's 100 degrees. Yeah. All of a sudden we get socked in with this kind of humidity and all of us are like it's so muggy and we open all the windows in our houses but without that airflow it's not very comfortable to be in my house this time of year sometimes mm. it's like oh it's just so muggy and hot in here that's exactly what moving airflow through your greenhouse does it's the same thing it's like when you open the windows yep. i need to put a fan on every window to push the air around yeah if i'm not pushing the air around it's just sticky and if you feel sticky, your plants your are going to feel gonna sticky. Your plants are going to feel sticky, exactly. exactly. So I'm a big airflow person. I'm like, the more airflow, the better. Constant. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Thank you. So, okay, so now you have all these sensors yes. distributed. Yes. And you're monitoring things, making yes. sure you don't have hot spots and things like that. So let's say you're a cannabis grower and you have three sensors in your greenhouse. Which one are you using to control? Or are you taking an average? We do an average. Okay. So so we do an average of sensors. You can put what we call monitor sensors in as well. So okay. we have control sensors and monitor sensors. So if you want to have one that you may not really move around. Um, let me, I want to clarify that because there's a wireless versus wired conversation uh -huh. yes, that we have yes. to have. Wireless sensing for monitoring, 100%. Love it. Do it all the time. Okay. Do not use wireless sensors to control your equipment. Why? Wireless does not, it's not reliable. You cannot confirm that that stays online. And this could oh, be my shit. old school. This is my old school grow room. This is Kelly old school where phones don't work when you're inside, when of things course. fall offline all the time. If you've ever typed, you know, your grower calls you from a greenhouse and it's just noisy and it's crazy and things, I just, to trust that your fans are going to turn on based on a sensor reading. I want that sensor hardwired into my brain. Mm -hmm. I want to know that that sensor is always going to send me information. Because if a wireless sensor falls offline, your fans aren't going to turn on. <laughs> your lights aren't going to go off. Things could, it, 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 and then you lose your whole crop because of a wireless sensor. So big believer in wireless sensing for lots of monitoring. Put tons of them out in the greenhouse. Get all the data points you want. Do all of that. But the ones that make control decisions, keep them hardwired. Yeah, that yeah. makes a lot of that's, sense. That's how uh -huh. I do it. So when I say like you can have more sensors and you can move them around, the wired ones we make control decisions off, wireless, lots of data points. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I know you'll get some feedback on that because people are like, no, no, wireless works. I'm well, well, I mean, open to yeah, the Yeah, sure, wireless works. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like you said, you want to depend on it because when do systems fail in a, in a, on any farm? Fourth of July and Christmas is my experience. Friday afternoon after three. <laughs> there you go. Constantly. Yeah. Christmas Eve when mm. everybody's trying to run to the airport to get on a plane to get home. <laughs> Fourth of July, big, big one. I don't know why. And Memorial Day and Labor Day the Friday before. Constant. Yeah. Constant. Always Fridays at three. It's a 
big are, thing. I mean, are all the like sensors and controls like colluding together? To, like, <laughs> they're coming after Intelli Kelly. They're like, we're gonna. Take That's it. part of the AI conversation. <laughs> I think that what it is, and I actually have had this conversation with quite a few of my farmers. They're really busy during the week. You know, they've got employees. Mm. They're harvesting. They're packaging. They're doing all this stuff. And it's like Friday afternoon is when they finally kind of take a breath and they're like, crap, that sensor's been offline since Wednesday, you know, or something like that. Or, you know, this, this probe isn't reading right. And it's when they finally just have that moment to where they can call me and be like, okay, I've got a few minutes to troubleshoot. Yeah. It's just that they all have a moment at three o'clock on Friday. <laughs> I'm like, could we schedule your, your so meltdowns? So do you have like a little call center like at three in the afternoon on Friday? Like, I'm available for your meltdown at 11, your meltdown at one. I need a lunch break. but uh, My office hours are this yes. time. Yeah, but I think that that really is why the Friday thing, and, and right before the holidays too. You know, these guys are trying to get out of town for like a few days to spend some time with family yeah. or whatnot. And it's like, but I got to fix that before I go. Because the funny thing about like a, a, a probe or a sensor or something going down is that, you know, a good grower can work around that for a yeah. day. Well, they're in there. They're doing their thing. That's so true. But they're like, I got to go home for the weekend or I'm going to be camping or I want to go snowboarding or I want to do this or I want to do that. And it's like, I got to get that online so I can check on my phone and make sure it's yeah. working. And yeah. so, yeah. So Friday afternoons at three. That's my goal. Kind of like straightening up your desk before the weekend, <laughs> right? Exactly. You come back and like yeah. everything is good to go. Yeah, and yeah. Your call brain Kelly. is clear. Yeah. And everything. Yeah. Yeah. Call Kelly. Call Kelly. All figured out before I go home for the weekend. Is it easier to control a greenhouse system? And I'm talking probably more like climate management because I imagine the hydroponic system. Yeah, is we haven't pretty, even gotten into water control. Yeah. Yet. Yeah. Fairly similar between uh-huh. greenhouse and indoor. Yeah. But the thing that's really different is the climate management yeah. in a greenhouse versus indoor. What's easier? So indoor is easier is to it? control. Yeah. I mean, especially once we get all the equipment dialed. So once the tracks are dialed for the size room that they're controlling mm-hmm. and you've got the right amount of dehums in there and you've got the you know, the fans are all doing what they're supposed to do yeah. and you've got your CO2 right and everything's kind of dialed. You know, that that's the thing about indoor. It just does the exact same thing every single day. That's true. It doesn't have any change. And that's the whole point of growing indoors is that we don't care what it is outside. Yeah. We're creating that perfect environment 365 days a year. So indoor environments are easier on a control side of thing where greenhouse is more exciting. More exciting. I oh, love, I like that you I said like it greenhouse like that. Control. I mean, I love indoor grows because that's my background and that's like where I come from. And that's like, you know, boutique, small, like indoor farms. Yeah. I just love that. But greenhouse is exciting. You know, I mean, like, you know, like the Colorado greenhouse where it's like 20 degrees at night and 80 degrees during the day. And it's like, what are we doing? Are we opening vents? Are we running shaders? <laughs> you know, it's like, how are we managing this? Because we've got this whole un predictable like thing I mean we've got mother nature that we're dealing with and now they're like it's gonna be warm today you're like yeah but how warm is it gonna get because you (laughs) say it's gonna get that warm but I think it's gonna be like this and is it warm with the sun out or is it overcast yes and is it muggy warm is it dry warm and and I and so greenhouses are a bigger challenge they're more fun and I will say that as the controls person and not as the grower Uh, yeah right (laughs) because the grower's like that's not fun and I'm going like it's cool I get to because I'll, I'll say this, like on our bigger control system, the multi-grow that we do for, you know, commercial farms, 
our grow room software has been done for a really long time mm. because it's HPEC, it's CO2, it's dehumidifiers, it's lights. There's, it's kind of some the basics, some fans and things. Greenhouse, we're constantly adding features to greenhouse because every greenhouse is different and every environment is different. And if you're in Arizona versus if you're in Colorado or now you're in Michigan or you're in Florida or Bermuda or Jamaica or I'm down in Chile or I'm in New Zealand. Yeah. And so everybody's got these different kinds of like requirements. And so um, I have a really cool engineering team and these guys are like, they're geniuses. I mean, they're total geniuses. And we just brainstorm through stuff. And it's like, well, and, and they're so funny. They're like, let me think on it. And they're like, 45 minutes, figured it out. How, how did you even figure that out? Genius. I don't know. You know, that's why they do what they do and right. I do what I do. I'm like, this is what the customer needs. But it's fun. Greenhouses is um, challenging and it, it's a little more exciting. Um, but don't get me wrong, I love my indoor guys. Yeah. Because there's the indoor control, in my mind, is riskier as a controls person because an HVAC goes down. And I have no options. You can't just open. I can't a just ridge open a ridge vent and cool yeah. it down. Yeah. The dehums go down. There's no way to get humidity out of that it's room now. True. I so am I going to run the AC to 50 degrees? Am I going to just freeze the plants because I got to get that humidity mm -hmm. out of there somehow? So when green, when indoor farms are running perfectly, they're easy. easy. But when something goes wrong, it's an emergency. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting <clears throat> because. I mean, indoor equipment is so much more complicated. All the the, mm -hmm. the componentry in an HVAC system is way more complicated uh, complicated to operate. You know, to do that cooling and dehumidification and everything. And a greenhouse is simple. It's fans. It's yeah. a pump, right? It's a vent. It's a motor, right? Like really simple controls, but way more complicated to operate and to manage. Oh and yeah. And just the dynamics of, of the environment. And you are making decisions not about which equipment to run and, and how many of them. I mean, you are doing that, but you're also like, am I just venting? Am I, am I naturally venting? Oh, am I turning fans on? And now I'm mechanically venting. Oh, do I need to turn on a cooling pad? Oh, do I need to close a shade? Do I need, to, you know, like, there's so many more steps and stages in a greenhouse, which does give you more control in some ways. Yep. If you have the ability to if control If you have the them. ability to control all yeah. of that. And it's, um, it, it, it's not just doing it to do it, it's to do it efficiently. So Thank if I'm going to, that. yeah, if I'm gonna run my heat because, you know, we use heat for a couple things, you know, heat to heat up the greenhouse, but we yeah. also can use it as a humidity controller yeah. if we need to. So if I'm going to run my heat because my humidity is a little, well, there's a couple different ways. You know, sometimes it burns humidity. Sometimes you can heat warm it up to build humidity. You know, there's a lot of different That's ways true. you can do it. But I also don't want to throw my vents open right after I've just paid for all the propane to run my right. heaters, right? It's this, it, 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 And so there's a lot of efficient ways that you can run a greenhouse. Whereas like on indoor, I'm just running that HVAC to maintain, you know, 78 degrees. I'm running, you know, the dehum to keep it at like, you know, 63 or whatever it may be that you want. And I'm just maintaining that set point. But in the greenhouse, I'm like, but I just ran that piece of equipment. So should I run this piece of equipment? Mm -hmm. And so like the offsets and dead bands and things become really important in your control system so that you can make sure that you never push the climate to a point where you have problems with the crop, but you also are the most energy efficient that you can be and the most equipment safe. 
because I think that people don't really value, like, you don't want to turn your fans on for 20 seconds at a time. Oh, my God. You know what I mean? Like, cycling that. It's like... I mean, do you want to have a fan tomorrow? (laughs) Yeah, exactly, you know? (laughs) But when I look at some of the settings that people put in, I'm like, you know, that's just cycling on and off, like, every 30 seconds. I'm like, let it run for three or four minutes. Let that motor, you know, fire up and warm up and actually run like it's supposed to. Then let it cool down like it's supposed... I mean, let that motor run like it was designed. Okay, do you think that's because equipment is oversized? Um, or or, yeah. or maybe it's not oversized because you need it for those really hot days. Yep. I mean, how much staging or variable speed control are you seeing? Because right? then you could ramp it down and you're not just at the highest speed possible. Yes. So on, on the bigger projects that we work on, lots of variable speed drives, tons of those that I'm we so run. I'm so glad to hear that. And we love to ramp up. Like, you know, one of the projects that's a really cool one is we've got like a three banks of fans, right? The first fan comes on in the middle. That's low speed. Shocking. I know. <laughs> then the two outside fans come on at the same time. Together? Oh on my low gosh. speed. And then we ramp them up medium nice. and then high. So when you look at like the way that that's staged in the controls, you know, that's like seven or eight different stages of cooling that you have that are all triggered as it gets warmer in the greenhouse. You can also use them for humidity control, but mostly yes. in, in these, we use them on BPD. So if you're running, you know, if you're running your greenhouse because you're trying to achieve a VPD in your greenhouse, that's a different way of controlling your equipment mm-hmm. than if you're just trying to maintain a temperature set point or if you're just trying to maintain a humidity set point. Because now we're looking at things like we're doing burps and purges to you know, try and get exactly. some of the humidity yeah. out, but we're also running our foggers. So you're like, well, if I know I need to purge, do I want to run my foggers and then immediately open up my vents and turn on a fan? Probably don't want to waste all that fogging I just paid for. You know, I yeah. mean, it's everything, every single thing has a cost attached to it. So it's working with like onsets and offsets. I mean, like I'm willing to let it get to this humidity to allow for cooling of fogging. But once it hits here, then I'm okay to let it wait for a few more percent, but then I need to do a purge. But let's wait to allow that fogging to have had some sort of effect and not immediately purge it out. And that's that's education for, yeah. for me. That's what I spend a lot of my time doing is working with growers who are like, this is what I'm trying to maintain. How do I get there? And I'm like, let's look at all the different equipment you have and what are the best control decisions that we can make to, to get as close to your desired set points as possible and also not ruin your equipment or just cost you an arm and a leg and energy and just waste everything that you've just done. Right. So like we know that CO2 in greenhouses is, is a necessity, in my opinion. I mean, and for all crops, that's not just a cannabis yeah, thing. Yeah. I mean, we see big, CO, big benefits in lettuce and tomatoes and everything for CO2. We also know that if you have a greenhouse in a hot climate in August, your vents are gonna be open like all day. Right. So we're not gonna inject CO2, because right. that would be silly. You're also getting so much more light to compensate yes. for not having, for not having it. the CO2. Yeah. But in January, when we've got these short, dark days, and we can keep that greenhouse closed, yeah. burn that CO2, go crazy, and help give the plants a fighting chance because they're gonna need exactly. it. Exactly. Because they're not getting the sun like they're, that they want. So yeah. uh, we do a lot of different kind of seasonal controls. Like that's a big one. The first probably mm-hmm. two years that you have a complete control system, we're gonna talk, well, we're gonna talk a lot, to be honest, it, it, it never goes away. We're, we're, we're lifelong friends forever, and that's, you want that. You do not want a controls company who's like, it's been a year, Bye. good luck, like that's no, that's not a right. A year, I yeah. mean, you can't, like three we gotta months. Get you, we gotta get you through two years, because that's two falls, two winters, two springs, and two summers. And we gotta figure out how to get you dialed in, because that first year, 
Ooh, wing and a prayer, baby. It's like, what are we doing? Like, we haven't had a system that, that has this much data and this much monitoring and this much control. We're going into summer and it's like, we're putting in our best options and we're looking at it and we're making adjustments. And then we come out of summer and we're like, we did okay. But when we go into next summer, now we're gonna have a much better idea about how yeah, to utilize to it. To tune it, really. To tune it to really get yeah. it right. Because that first year, especially if you live in a place that has seasons. I mean, yeah, right. I, I'm on the coast of California, <laughs> yeah. so not so much where I live. But you know, in these places that have these cold winters and hot summers and you know, this autumn that hits really hard differently than you yeah. know in other places. Yeah, it's different control options. Yeah. So there's a couple things you've said um, a bit ago. One, offsets and dead ban. Yes. Can you explain, I mean, you gave a really good example, but, but what does that mean exactly? So a really good example of like a dead band for, let's just say I wanted, for ease of numbers, we'll say I want it to be 75 degrees in this area. So my dead band could be one degree. That means that between 74 and 76, it's all the same to the Nothing control system. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. It's a dead band. And we put that in there to make sure that we, we've given the, the sensor a little bit of time to kind of catch up with what's happening, that we, that, that we understand that, you know, there's going to be, you can bounce between 74.8 and 75 <laughs> all day long, you know what I mean? And so we put a little bit of a dead band in there, but then there's an offset for the controls. So I could say that like, I want to, let's say a plus two degree and a negative one degree offset for heating. And that would be that if I'm 75 is my set point and I've got a dead band of one degree, that means between 74 and 76, nothing happens. Mm -hmm. With a heating offset of plus two, oh, I'm sorry. Oh no, of negative one, let me clarify. That means that it would have to get down to 73 degrees before my heaters would turn on. So that's a full two degrees below so my set point. So it's on the other side of the dead band. It's on the got other side it. of the dead band. Okay. And then my offset of plus two means that it would have to get up to 78 degrees before the heater went off. So what you're doing there is you're saying that when I fire that heater up, I want it to be two degrees less than my set point, and I'm letting, I want it to run for five degrees. I want to get five degrees of heat in that, in that greenhouse so that I, I, I made sense of why I fired up the, 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 you know, the propane heater, why I turned on the fan, why I'm paying for all that energy. I want to get enough heat in this greenhouse that it actually is going to make a difference. And then it could maybe stay hot. Yeah, and for stay the next hot. Five to, yeah. And then we're gonna creep back down, and we're gonna you know kind of get back down into that dead band, and we're gonna sit. And then if it keeps even colder, we do it again. But you can set your onsets and offsets. So then, like my 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 vent offset, like let's say my roof vent may be at a plus four, so that I'm not gonna open my vent until it gets to seventy nine or degrees or eighty degrees. Okay. So that if I did have to run a heat, for example. I mean, I, I could let it get hotter before I would then let all of that Or out. if there was a failure, it failed on yes, or something. all kinds yeah, of things. And, yeah. and so we do that for every piece of equipment. So it's CO2, it's fans, it's heaters, it's dehumidifiers, it's your hydronic heating, it's Are your vents. Are you programming all this? So it, the, this is the thing, when you work with a company who makes specific controls for climate, this is already like the, the brain that you're getting. The grower then just dials in the, the dead bands and the offsets. But what I do is I help them. Okay. To, uh, to educate them, to understand why those decisions make, like why choosing that, what is that going to do? So we evaluate every system individually. They're all custom. So, you know, it's not like I'm like everybody with a fan run it like this. That never work. Every single greenhouse is different. Every location is different. Every grower is different. Everybody's budgets are different. Their energy usage is different. Some people live in places where energy is really expensive. Other places it's basically free. You know, they don't care if they run all their equipment, you know, energy inefficiently let's say 
it kills me. I'm a California know, right? kid. I can't do that. <laughs> but our our our, uh, our energy is very expensive, so right. we have to be a lot different. So there's a lot of things that go into it, but that's the that's part of the training I do. Okay, so the other question I wanted to ask is, what are the variables that you're monitoring and controlling to? I mean, you've mentioned a few, but just in in general, I'm so glad you brought up VPD because I wanted to ask because. Oh, yeah. I have seen monitoring or control systems that don't have a VPD output. I'm like, and you're in horticulture? Are yeah. you trying to target this audience? It, yeah, it's 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 interesting. So we so we monitor temp humidity, CO2, and light, right? We also do EC and pH. Yeah. We do all types of media monitoring. So we do okay. the moisture in the media, the ECs in the media, media temperature. Um, in our irrigation systems, for example, like, we trigger off time of day simply, or we can trigger off the temperature of your media. We can trigger off the moisture in your media. We can trigger off VPD. So we irrigate based on the VPD in ah, the environment, clever. which I thought you'd like that. Uh, we can also trigger off of like dew points and fog and, you know, solar levels. So hot days we water more and, you know, yeah. hot sunny days are more and cold overcast days we water less. And so there's a lot of ways because water efficiency, of course, is huge. We don't want to waste any water. and. Yeah. When you buy a hydroponic system, you make a big investment up front to save money in the long run. Mm -hmm. I mean, hydroponics is like 85, 90% less water than you know normal soil right. ag. And so we wanna make sure that we're working in that to make sure you're using the least amount of water for the highest crop you know, that you can get. Like a, So there's that. And then, yeah, we so we monitor your whole environment. Um, outside of greenhouses, for example, we do you know temp humidity. Um, of course, we're always monitoring VPD, rain and wind and things like that, so we're not throwing open roof fence and having to blow off. You know, Good to know. Simple, yeah, simple yeah. things that <laughs> you would take for granted as a greenhouse controller and find out that not all not all greenhouse controllers, the weather stations, have no I idea know. how are you supposed to open a roof vent when you don't know where the wind's coming from. That's actually one of my favorite things about troubleshooting a greenhouse uh, system versus an indoor system is that I know that the greenhouse... I know, quote unquote, yes. I know that they're going to have a weather station and they're going to have data <laughs> right there on site. Yes. Where an indoor facility, it's like, oh, what's a weather station, uh -huh. right? Why would I even be like monitoring what's happening outside, right? Because they're they are decoupled yes. from from the weather yes. and from what's going on outside. So I totally respect that. I understand that. Um, but then you're like, okay, so what's the closest like? You know, <laughs> airport. What's the closest yeah. available weather station? To get yeah. It. yeah. And you're, and what's actually interesting about that is there's like so many microclimates, especially, you know, where you could be. Yeah. I mean, I know where you are. Yes. I mean, you probably have 10 climate zones in like 100 square miles. Yes, we do. I mean, it's 110 degrees inside and you drive 30 minutes and it's 60. And you're freezing, yeah, right? You're like freezing. bring a sweater. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's like, even if it's the closest airport, it might, might actually not even be the most representative oh, climate. Are we on the location. side of a mountain? Or do we have, you know, are we worried about shade in the morning? You know, do we not get sun until 11 a.m.? Mm -hmm. That's a big one up where we are because you're trying to find that uh, right spot where you're on the side of a mountain. I mean, we're in the Trinity Alps. And if you're growing on the side of a mountain, there is going to be a time of the day when you don't have full sun. You're yeah. on a mountain. And so, you know, there's shades and things like this. And so you've got to think about that when you're, Greenhouse placements and knowing outdoor information is so important in all of that. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned the weather stations and the indoors. I actually have a few of my indoor guys who have weather stations. Yes, that's awesome. Michigan. Michigan. Really? Because it is so cold during certain times of the year that they don't want to run their HVAC. They can just pull that cold air in from outside. They're doing it's that. It's dry, cold air. 
They're using yeah. airside economizing. Yes. I love so it. They're, so oh, they're, I so, want to talk to them. Yeah, so they're defaulting. So we have a setting that basically says that if it's over this temperature in my grow room, but it's under this temperature outside and the humidity isn't too high, just switch over to my Yay. intake fans. Oh. It's fantastic. I mean, you want to talk about economy. Yeah. It's like, there you go. It's, and it's like free, energy. dry, cold air. Exactly. Why are we running HVACs exactly. in January in Michigan? I know. You know? When, and now you're like you at risk of the compressor yeah, like, freezing. freezing. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the other thing is let's not turn those on. Yeah, so it, it, that's, that's newer to us, I'd say, in the last year, year and a half. It's not that a lot of people are doing that just yeah. yet. Most, to be honest, most indoor farms aren't set up to bring in exactly. outside air in. If they have an intake and exhaust, it was run the one time that the fire department came in and said, you have that, right? And they went, look, yeah. it turns on. And then... It's been sealed ever since. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm so glad to hear that you have had customers that are doing that because we are doing a lot more analyses mm-hmm. with clients in those northern climates who are interested. Can we use the outside air to yeah. cool and dehumidify? So we started looking at it, but then finding the equipment that can do it and finding the controls that can do what you just said, monitor not just the temperature, but also the humidity. humidity. That's a big one because if it's snowing outside or we got a big slushy, nasty day, yeah. And the humidity is really high or there's you know it's pouring down rain or something i don't care that it's cold that's not okay or yeah yeah because the air outside could actually have more moisture than yeah. what's inside yeah even we're, we're bringing in 80 percent humidity excellent, excellent. Yeah, yeah yeah so um what are just to kind of wrap up the conversation i know we could talk I, we're we just gonna have hours. to do this again <laughs> yeah totally but what are some of the biggest mistakes you see growers making when it comes to monitoring and controls um, I think that 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 uh, a trend I do not love in the industry right now is cheaping out on your sensors. Um, I think that there like are, not having enough or picking uh, cheap picking ones. cheap sensors. Okay. Um, and and it's I wouldn't say that it was really really in the bigger commercial. I mean, those guys understand that they've got to pay for the big, you know, the the commercial grade yeah. heavy duty sensors. But in kind of that small to medium hobby grow i'm sorry and this is my old school i need to clarify commercial cannabis but small to medium <laughs> hobby was always the word we used if you were a hobby grower you grew weed and if you then you were a commercial grower you didn't grow weed that was back in the day and it comes out sometimes i can't help myself but if you were at kind of that level you know people are just buying these like raspberry pi sensors and they've got a plus the plus five percent on humidity that's a 10% range. That is yeah. not humidity control. That's just wishing that your humidity <laughs> is somewhere near what you want your humidity to be. So like the quality of your sensors is 100% how your equipment will run. Mm. So you're gonna go spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on this really nice DM and then put a crappy humidity sensor in the room. I, you know, yeah. or people who are building out these facilities and they're not having things talk. So it's, it's weird how often I have to talk my greenhouse growers into buying our integrated CO2 sensors. And they're like, well, we already have a CO2 company putting, coming out. And I'm like, they're not gonna know when your vents are open or when you're running fans. Or I was like, you need us to control your CO2. Now, let that company come in and put the CO2 tanks in For and sure. run it all. They're the safety people. They need to do that. But you cannot run CO2 efficiently if your CO2 system doesn't talk to your control system that's yeah. opening and closing your vents and running your fans. and. You know, knowing all of that, you know, there's just so it's it's probably always been my frustration is just the not the cohesiveness of getting your control system to do everything. 
Um, you know, people, a big mistake, I think a lot of times is that they buy a climate controller and then they get like a separate irrigation controller and then they have this yeah, like deep moisture. It's yeah. a lot. And there's a few reasons for it. It's not always the grower's fault. A lot of times, like the person who sells the structure just is only concerned about the environment in the structure. And then like the person sure. who sells the growing system is only worried about the irrigation okay. for that. So I basically spend all the time trying to merge the two. It's like, I'm constantly being like, oh, you're selling that system and you're selling the structure. Can I talk to that grower before they make a decision? Because I think that what they really want is a controller that does all of it. Yeah. But they don't know that that's even a thing. So sometimes you just get this package that you put up and you're like, oh, that's my system. And Well, even like what you just said, like if, if irrigation rates, volumes, frequencies, whatever, are based off of VPD, mm-hmm. then that's a, a climate management variable. Yep. And yep. now you're going to irrigate to that. We could say the same thing about air temperature, solar yep. radiation and light and DLI and all these other things. Like they're not separate. They are all interconnected and you change one thing and it should impact how you do these other things. A hundred percent. So it's complete control is what we're looking for mm. here. And it's not always feasible for everybody's budgets. I get that. I mean, I, I totally do. But when you get to a certain level, you know, you're dropping two to five million or 20 to 30 million. I mean, there's different, you know, on these, on these facilities and we're looking at like a 20 or $30,000 controller on a two and a half million dollar project. It's a drop in the bucket to have that level of control. Plus it's the text alerts, it's the email alerts, it's the, all of the fail safes that are built in those on and offsets. So if equipment fails, my goal is to avoid crop loss 100%. I never want to have crop loss. Yeah. Then my second goal is to make your crop killer. I want you to have like the best crop ever. But the first thing is let's not kill it. Second, let's make it really good, right? It's like everyone's like, oh, we're going to grow a killer crop. Well, are you going to kill it though? Because like, don't do that. You have to have all those fail saves are important. Not everybody has them. You know what I mean? It's like everybody talks about it, but it's like, what are we, what are, how are we going to avoid all the risks? Yeah. So that's a big part of it too, is if you have it all in one place like that, you can monitor a whole lot easier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you've seen this industry evolve a lot over. I mean, over and over again. Yeah, yeah. twenty-two plus years. Yes. What What are you looking forward to, or what are you hoping for for the future over the next twenty years? Where's this industry going to go? Where do you want it to go? Well. Oh, geez, over 20 years. I was thinking I was getting the five-year Oh, well, you can do five. You can do five. I'm just thinking you've been in the industry for 20 years and how it's evolved. Like, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things that I worry about um, in the cannabis space that I hope that a lot of my growers and my friends and things can can, can hold on and get through this next couple of years Mm -hmm. that I think are going to be real rocky and it's rough. Um, I'm worried, of course, about some of the ways that the laws are being written and that the, the big, huge corporations are coming in. And I really enjoy my mom and pop farmers. That's like something I've always really liked. So I'm hoping that they can hold on and that we can really see the cannabis space become like the wine industry and the beer industry where our boutique farms and our, our whatnot really can thrive. And, you know, I really love like the co-ops of all the boutique farms coming together and forming like this cool co-op so that they have some backbone that they can all stand on together. So I'm really hoping that we see that through. I, I also just, I I can't imagine California not going more and more hydroponic when it comes to growing food. They have to, we have no water. Yeah. I, I mean, oh, we just catch fire and burn all year round. <laughs> we have no water here and it's not getting any better. 
if we want to keep growing food here to feed the 40 million people who leave it, live in the state, let alone how much we export, we're going to have to grow in the hydroponics so that yeah. we can use less water to grow more food. So the produce side of it is going to be really exciting too, I think. Um, and because of the environment, we're going to get more greenhouse structures. I think people are going to have to control the environment more. We're going to have to be more efficient about growing food. So, yeah, yeah I agree. It's I a big agree. question. There's a lot of things, but yeah, that's yeah. kind of my long-term view. I hope that my little guys can hang out and, you know, that the guys don't eat them up too fast. Yeah. So last question for you. What do plants crave? <laughs> I think that... I know it's so cheesy, but I do. I think it's love. I just think that plants crave love. I do. I think that if you love a plant and you take care of a plant, and you that that plant will thrive. And by loving a plant, it's just like loving a dog or a little human. You have to take care of it. You have to give it the things it needs. You need to let it sleep when it needs to sleep. You need to feed it like healthy food. You need to make sure that it's not too cold or too hot. Like if you love it, your plants are going to thrive. And I just think that that's what they need. Awesome. That's perfect. All right, so I have a couple of rapid fire questions for you. So just one or two sentences, um, doesn't have to be extensive. Okay. All right, number one, are plants introverts or extroverts? Oh, I think they're extroverts. Yeah, mm -hmm. all plants? Some more than others. Okay. I have one house plant I'm thinking of right now. If oh, you're you do? At my face. <laughs> oh, it's a super extrovert. It like challenges me and my extrovertedness, yes. Yeah, it How does. so? Wait, what? I swear, because this plant will grow anywhere I put it. I don't even know it's a magic plant. It doesn't always need light. It grows outside of any... I have little cages around my houseplants because I also have three cats. So, you know, that goes. And it grows outside of the cage. It's not supposed to grow outside of the cage. It's just super extra. This plant is so extra. <laughs> and, and it just is. It's, a, it's super extrovert. But the little one that sits next to it all the time, super introverted. But I, I think that on the general, they're kind of extroverts. Okay. Do you think they talk to each other? Oh, geez, that's a big question. I, I mean, why not? I yeah. think they got a cool vibe. I mean, I think that they yeah. vibe with each other. I don't know, like, that they would use, like, the English language. But the same way that, like, my cats don't use the English they language, please. they all talk to one another. And plants do, too. Yeah. All right. Can cannabis create a more sustainable world? Oh, I mean, just in general, just think about all the people that I'm thinking of right now. If they would just get high, be so <gasps> nice. Like, there are so many people that could just do so well. Just a little bit of an edible, just like a little bite of a brownie. If everybody just took it for like one afternoon, chill out. Yeah. Jeez, just chill for a little bit. I mean, that, that just actually made me do a deep exhale because I'd be like, oh my God, that'd be so nice. Um, I do think that cannabis actually has a lot of really cool ways that it can change the world. I mean, I believe in hemp massively. I believe in like what we can do environmentally with it. I mean, obviously everything that we do right now is not perfect environmentally. You know, it's not always great. Some of the things that we do with indoor, but it is still a business and we have to make a profit. And this business that we run now will allow for the bigger changes in the future. It's really exciting to see medical and things going in all these new markets internationally. And you know, just having my mom and, you know, grandparents talking about these CBD oils that they're using and these rubs that make their ankles feel better. I love that. So, you know, I'm like a California kid. I was I, I was in San Francisco in 1996 when the law passed. So, yeah. you know, I've been I've been doing this a long time. So I do believe that it could. But yes, everybody could definitely use a vitamin edible. <laughs> All at the exact same time. 
<laughs> well, Kelly, that is the end of um, my questions for today. We will definitely have to come back yeah. um, and, and keep geeking out over yeah. plants, horticulture, and uh, controls and just the industry in general. Absolutely. This is fun. I love it. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah, thank you.